Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going, I just thought I'd put in a quick plug for Pippa. We've been doing our hosting with them since 2016. It's been a fantastic experience. So if you have a podcast, you might check them out. They have great analytics, the service is free, and they make it easy to migrate. So if you're curious, visit their website at pippa.io. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Stephen Nadler, William H. Hay II Professor of Philosophy, and Evu Bascom Professor of the Humanities, and Weinstein Bascom Professor of Jewish Studies at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And he's here to discuss Spinoza on Freedom. Stephen Nadler, welcome. Thanks for having me, Matt. Okay, so freedom is a word that gets tossed around a lot in contemporary political discussions, we want to be free. And then there's also freedom as it pops up in philosophy, which maybe it's related, maybe it's the same thing, maybe it's different, I don't know. And that that has to do more with like, do we have control and responsibility over the things we do? What did the philosopher Baruch de Spinoza think freedom was? Well, Spinoza had a very um, idiosyncratic conception of freedom. Idiosyncratic because of the larger metaphysical picture in which he discusses the issue of freedom. Remember that for Spinoza, um, we are all modes or in God or nature. And so human beings don't have this kind of ontological autonomy that we ordinarily think that things have. We are no different from other parts of nature. We're part of nature. We're governed by nature's laws. And this is just as true for our states of mind, our mental states, our emotions, our passions, our acts of volition, our imaginations, even our intellectual thoughts are all bound together by the laws of nature just as much as our bodies are. So Spinoza does not think that there is such a thing as freedom of the will, either in a libertarian sense or in any sense in which all things being the same, one could have chosen otherwise than as one did. So if you are looking for the kind of freedom that gives you independence from the causal determinism that governs most of nature, you're not going to find that in Spinoza. What freedom does consist in for him is a kind of spontaneity or self-governing autonomy. Not spontaneity in the sense of uncaused events. There are no such things for Spinoza in nature. But in a way, very much like a Kantian kind of autonomy, where the things you do, the choices you make, the decisions you make, the goals you pursue follow not so much from how you are affected by other things, that's passivity, but from your own knowledge of what's really good and what is in your own best interest. Okay, right. So it's not like the things I do, I just make happen out of nowhere. They're caused. They're subject to all the same laws of nature as everything else. So I'm not free in that sense. But still, he wants to make some distinction between me being acted on by other things and, I don't know what exactly, taking the initiative or like having the reason for doing things initiate in me or something like that? Right. Is that- you know, exactly. Uh, well, and maybe the most precise way to put it is it's the difference between being acted on and being active. You're being, we're always active to some degree because we are always striving. That's sort of our core essence for Spinoza. Every individual, every human being is striving to persevere 
in its existence and even striving to increase its own power to persevere. And so what you have in this grand picture of nature for Spinoza is this very agonistic or confrontational picture of things in nature are parcels of striving against each other. Things strive to maintain themselves, other things strive to maintain themselves, and sometimes they come into conflict and these strivings push against each other. And so we as a part of nature are always being impinged upon by other things and we're always being passively affected by the objects in the world around us. But because we're also striving ourselves, we're in a way pushing back. And so our lives are a struggle between being acted upon and being active or acting. And the more free we are, the more active we are. The more we are determined by things outside of us, the more passive we are, the more we are in bondage to the world around us. So is it like a sliding scale? Because I'm, I'm just trying to think of like an everyday action. Let's say I feel really hungry, so I go out and I get a burger. Um, you know, from a certain point of view, I'm being acted upon because the hunger is driving me to get the burger. But then also from a certain point of view, look, I, nobody had a gun to my head. I decided I was going to respond to this hunger by going to get the burger. So is that the way that he would think of things? Like parts of what we do are influenced by from the outside and other respects, we initiate them or how does that work? Yeah, to a degree, it, it's sort of a sliding scale. I mean, your hunger moves you to get the burger. You're enticed by the advertisement outside this burger stand. And so you're passive or you're acted upon in that respect. But then again, you decide what kind of burger to get, what cheese to put on it, ketchup, mustard, and so on. But even that's a very trivial kind of activity insofar as the choices you're making in that situation are determined by your hunger or by the way in which something will make you feel. So the reason you choose ketchup rather than mustard may be because everybody around you is putting ketchup on their burgers and you're putting mustard and you don't want to be embarrassed. Or because ketchup gives you pleasure. You just like the flavor of ketchup. And to that extent, even your apparently active decision to have ketchup rather than mustard is determined by the way the appearance of ketchup, the taste of ketchup, the pleasure that ketchup causes you move you in a certain way. But let's say um, you choose not to have a burger, but you choose to have an orange. Because even though you have this really strong desire for a burger, you know that eating a hamburger is going to make you drowsy, it's not good for you, you're much better off having an orange or banana, even though that won't bring you as much pleasure, you don't really have a hankering for an orange or banana, you have a hankering for a burger and a beer, but if you make the choice you make, not because of your desires that are grounded in the attraction of pleasures, but because of desires that are grounded in your knowledge of what truly will improve your being, to that extent, you're really active. Okay, so it's like a sliding scale, but... Yeah. Well, and then at one end of the scale, you have Spinoza's model of human nature, which is sort of the ideal free person. And this is a person, all of whose decisions and choices are made according to what he calls the dictates of reason and not the passions. And is that the general picture here? Is it the general picture that when we're being acted upon by other stuff we're like slaves to our feelings and desires. And when we're being free, what we're doing is we're listening to reason instead and it's, you know, trumping our passions and our desires. Yeah, that's exactly it. And what reason tells you is through reason, you acquire a true causal picture of nature. You understand how things really are related. You understand the necessity of all things. And one of the benefits of that is a diminishing of the power of your passions. 
when you see through reason the necessity of all things in nature, how everything is governed by deterministic laws, how everything has a cause. It's a very stoic picture in the sense that the more you understand what is and is not under your control, the more moderated your passions will become with the the gaining and the losing of things that you value. Okay, great. So it seems like free actions are closely correlated here with rational actions. What did Spinoza think reason was? And it seems like that's doing some explanatory work here. It's doing a lot. Um, He distinguishes between different kinds of knowledge that one can have of a thing, especially of oneself and of nature as a whole. Uh, The first kind of knowledge he calls... He calls it the first kind of knowledge. It's knowledge of things or an acquaintance of things that we gain through sensation, through hearsay, and through the imagination. He calls this a mutilated and imperfect kind of knowledge because you really only get an apprehension of a thing that's a partial and perspectival picture. If I know, let's say I have some knowledge about something that I've acquired through sense experience, what I really know only is how that thing affects me, how it affects my body. I don't have a broad and complete and very deep picture of it. I just know how it makes me feel or how it happens to appear to me visually or tactilely or through taste or smell. But when I know something through reason, which he calls the second kind of knowledge, I situate that thing in a much broader causal nexus. I see how it's related to the whole of nature. I see how it's governed by nature's laws. And I understand its necessity In a way, I come to understand why the thing is as it is, why it had to be as it is. And my knowledge there achieves a kind of eternal perspective on the thing. I'm not just looking at it from this particular temporal spatial standpoint where my body is, but I'm seeing it from a broader intellectual perspective. And I really have a deeper understanding of the thing. And it seems like that's pretty much what was happening with the orange earlier. You know, the burger, if I just listened to my immediate desires, gave into them in the moment, I just go for the burger. But if I tried to take a step back and understand at a little bit of a bigger level how the world works, I'd learn a little bit about how nutrition works and about what's good for you over the long term, et cetera, et cetera. Getting that broader perspective would lead me to choose the orange. That's right. And of course, the orange versus the burger is a very trivial example because what Spinoza is really interested in is what's, what is the true good for us? What really benefits us in the long run? What should we devote our lives to pursuing? Well, bananas and jar oranges are good, but even better than fruit is knowledge. <laughs> Can I quote you on that? Yeah. Well, you see, I mean, you still have to eat, but... Uh. So what it takes for an action to be free is wrapped up here in what it takes for an action to be rational. And then those two things, it seems like, are also wrapped up in what it takes for an action to be good, morally. Uh, Spinoza identifies uh, the following items. Autonomy, freedom, rationality, power, and virtue. And the free person, uh, the person who lives according to the guidance of reason, is the virtuous person because he defines virtue as pra- virtue is uh, success in this striving to persevere and to maintain one's power and to increase it. And the most effective way of doing that is through reason. And so the person who is rational, who is virtuous, will also be the person who is most free and most powerful. So I think a lot of people have the intuition that at least in certain cases, or maybe like new or unfamiliar cases, like you should listen to your gut. I think there's this, people have a strong intuition about that. Like, I don't really understand, and maybe quickly under time pressure, what all the relevant factors are. I don't have the resources to take like a scientific perspective on this dilemma I'm in. 
do a bunch of experiments on it in the lab. All I have is like my gut feeling to go on. And sometimes, you know, your gut feeling is what you should trust. I wonder, was that intuition at all on the radar for Spinoza? Was he like reacting against that in some way? Um, It's hard to say, although, you know, it always depends on whose gut is saying what. If you think back to Aristotelian ethics, take the, the virtuous person, and this is an individual who has habituated him or herself to virtue, for whom acting according to the virtues, uh, acting with moderation, doing and feeling the right thing in the right situation as is appropriate, this is a person who has so habituated themselves to this kind of acting that their gut is probably fairly trustworthy about what the right thing to do is. But on the other hand, somebody who's not been habituated to the virtues, in Aristotle's view, why should we trust their gut? Their gut is the gut of ignorance. And I suppose um, you could think of Spinoza's free person in a similar way, that once they've achieved that degree of self-control, they will naturally and perhaps instinctively always do the right thing. I'm not sure I would call it acting from the gut, or acting from instinct, because it is acting accordance to the guidance of reason. It's a person whose choices and desires are guided by the intellect, not by raw intuition or raw instinct. That's really interesting. So somebody with like a very reason-centric perspective on morality like this maybe wouldn't be working with the same assumptions that are operative, I think, in a lot of popular culture today, that there's, well, there's reason on the one hand and there's the gut on the other, because as it were whether you make an instinctive judgment in the moment from your gut is kind of irrelevant to whether the judgment is correct. What's relevant to whether the judgment is correct is whether you're like reasoning properly with your gut or reasoning improperly with your gut, as it were. Yeah, I I don't think we want people making moral choices on the basis of gut instinct or gut intuition unless they have really finely developed, finely tuned guts. Right. (laughs) uh, Or, you know, finely tuned moral instincts. Right. You know, this is what I think Kant feared so much, that moral decisions should not be made on the basis of our particularistic desires, but rather from reason itself, impersonal reason dictating the moral law rather than the peculiarities. Um, and that's why the you know, categorical imperative is so different from the golden rule. The golden rule says, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. But if you're the kind of person who doesn't mind being treated in certain ways, then that would legitimate you treating others in that in those ways. Whereas the categorical imperative doesn't relativize what's morally permissible or morally mandatory from your own preferences and inclinations. And I think Spinoza has that same vision of moral decision-making. Uh, it's, it's a matter of reason, not a matter of inclination or raw instinct. At one point, this um, idea that different moral situations we're in at different times are like completely new and completely sort of indescribable using previous moral frameworks. Sometimes this is nicknamed particularism. That came up at, at a certain point. So was the idea here that that kind of never happens, that you never, if you have a properly worked out moral theory and understanding of how to weigh all the relevant considerations in a particular situation, is the idea then that there should never be any like totally new situation where you, you wouldn't be able to appeal to reason to figure out what to do? That's an interesting question. I mean, the will, Spinoza would be foolish to deny that there are situations that strike you as novel and unfamiliar. I mean, that's just the run of life. But he also um, would insist that the most important thing that you need to have knowledge of is yourself. 
And self-knowledge will and should prepare you for all eventualities. There will, of course, be situations you'll find yourself in where it might require a little more difficulty in figuring out what the right thing to do is, what truly would be good or bad in this situation. But a deep knowledge of yourself and of nature and of how you relate to things will give the free, rational, virtuous person a real leg up in how to approach these situations. So, yeah, eventually uh, the rationally virtuous person will always know what to do. And sometimes what, you know, there's a lot of paradoxes in Spinoza's moral philosophy. Some of the propositions in part four where he describes the life of the free person strike us as counterintuitive. He says the free person will always act honestly. And one might wonder, what, aren't there situations where it might be not just morally permissible to tell a lie, but morally uh, required to tell a lie? For example, if the Nazis come knocking at your door and asking if you're hiding a Jewish family in your attic. Uh, And here, you know, people have wrestled with Spinoza's claim that the free person will always act honestly, just as people have wrestled with Kant's claim that it's never morally permissible to tell a lie. And I think Spinoza, like Kant, means what he says here, that acting dishonestly, while it might seem to have benefits in the short run, in the long run, introduces divisiveness and discord between people. Okay, yeah, so this is a fascinating view so maybe we could step through exactly, I mean, let's say I'm some sort of con artist and I'm really good at charming the pants off people and getting them to give me their money and basically scamming them. And so let's say I uh, begin one of my con artist sales pitches and it works. Wasn't I totally free in deciding to scam this person? In what sense was this deceitful act I engaged in, like not a free act of mine? Well, why did you scam them? I scammed them in order to get another Lamborghini because I don't have enough. So I think you just answered your question. What moved you was your desire for a certain material possession, a possession which is not something that really brings you benefits in the long run. It brings you pleasure of a certain sort, but it's the kind of transitory... You know, you'll, you'll get tired of your Lamborghini, or you may, you may total it one day and imagine the, the disappointment, the sadness you'll feel. So you're setting yourself up for an immediate burst of pleasure followed by long-term... You're going to worry about this Lamborghini, the the parking costs will be extraordinary. You're always going to be concerned about where you put it, whether it's going to get a scratch here or there. So you'll become a slave to your Lamborghini. Right. Other people will get newer and better Lamborghinis. I'll be jealous of them. This won't be enough. Oh, you're going to be miserable. Yeah. <laughs> I see. Whereas if I was aiming at something that really was good for me rather than something that just seemed good to me, then it would be free. Yeah. I mean, I think the, you know, the ancient moral philosophers had a really clear view of this, that satisfying our strongest desires for material goods always bring pain. The pleasure is always counteracted by the misery that these possessions bring. The care, the anxiety, and the cost. And they're not worth it. Um, Get a used Volkswagen. <laughs> So we've been talking about Spinoza's moral philosophy, but he actually doesn't get talked about that much as a moral philosopher. People are more interested in his theory of nature, his theory of the universe, his uh, what are called metaphysical views. And it's kind of a funny thing because a lot of his most detailed ideas about those topics are the beginning part of a book called The Ethics. But then in this funny move, uh, a lot of the discussion never gets around to his actual ethics. Why do you think that is? Well, this is one of my pet peeves, um, and I think one of, the, one of the real shames in the way we often teach the history of modern philosophy. 
Uh, Spinoza falls between Descartes and Leibniz in courses in the history of modern philosophy, which we often require of majors. And he's there sort of as a straight man. Descartes sets up the problems of substance, um, the problem of ideas and knowledge. And we have Spinoza, who is presented often purely as a metaphysician in part one of the ethics and as epistemologist in part two. He's there to answer certain questions about the mind-body problem, um, the way he's often taught, the relationship of God to the world. And then Leibniz comes along and offers a different solution. And so students only get to read parts one and two of the ethics, and they're left wondering why in the world is this book called Ethics? There's no more, we haven't seen any moral philosophy. When in fact for Spinoza, parts one and two, the metaphysics, which sets up the place of the human being in nature, the epistemology, which describes what it is for us to have knowledge and what kind of knowledge we should be striving for, all of this is really in the service of a larger moral and political project. In fact, you could even say that the ethics is a kind of theological political treatise because his goal here is to debunk traditional theological pictures of God as a providential being. The traditional view of human beings is what he calls a kingdom within a kingdom or dominion within a dominion, where we have a kind of independence from nature. And the ethics is a book that is an attack on superstition. The belief that nature is governed by a providential deity, that we have freedom of the will, and that there is such a thing as an immortal soul, these are all in the service of the same moral political project as the theological political treatise, where his goal is to undermine the increasing political influence of ecclesiastic authorities in the Dutch Republic. So by undermining the authority of the Bible, by eliminating superstitious beliefs about God and the soul, by debunking the pretensions of the prophets to have philosophical knowledge, all of these are in the service of the same liberational project of human freedom, not just in the metaphysical sense, but in the moral political and religious sense as well. That's really fascinating. So it's like part of what he's bringing our attention to is that previous views about what it is to be a good person and what people should do, what's going to make people happy, were perhaps driven by this picture of human beings as somehow being detached from nature or above nature or um, having power over nature which perhaps goes along with the traditional Judeo-Christian worldview, or at least certain ways of historically inheriting that worldview. And the intuition there, I guess, is something like, well, look, if we're going to be responsible for the things we do, we have to have freely chosen them. It can't be like the laws of physics made me do X, Y, Z, because if so, then I'm not responsible for it, or whatever. And then it seems like maybe what Spinoza is trying to do is give us a new answer to all those questions about what it is to be a good person, what it is to be happy, what it is to live a good life, etc., etc., that's not dependent on this separation between human beings and the rest of the physical, natural, chemical, biological world. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. Um, the doctrine of freedom of the will is so central to the Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition. We bear much of the responsibility, not just for our fate in this world, but for our fate in some alleged world to come. And there's no question that Spinoza's object here is both that traditional religious picture, but also the Cartesian view that the soul has an ontological and moral independence from the body. 
Um, and as Descartes describes in The Passions of the Soul, which, and also the classic Stoic view, that we can totally master our emotions, that the will is capable of dominating and in part even eliminating certain bad passions. And Spinoza says that's just not possible. A human being cannot not be a part of nature. On the other hand, it's, what's striking in the ethics is that there's really no discussion in there about responsibility and praise or blame. So if there's an ethics here, it's not an ethics of responsibility and praise or blame. It's an ethics of happiness, perfectionism and eudaimonism. How can one bring oneself to a condition where one is flourishing as a human being? And there's there's also the the additional difficulty, and my students everywhere pick up on this right away. If you're a philosopher who believes that everything is causally determined, now I'm not going to say causally predetermined. There's no, it's not a fatalism. There's no providential deity who has set things up and predetermined them so a certain outcome is going to be there. That's one of the superstitious beliefs that Spinoza is fighting. But if everything is causally determined, including all of our choices, our acts of will, our desires, what's the point of an ethics? It's not as if somebody can spontaneously decide, ah, I'm going to change my life. I've not been living the right way. I'm going to be a better person. But you know, I think to put that challenge to Spinoza, it's a little unfair. What he's saying, he's not saying you should change your life. What he's saying is, here's what happiness is. Here are the causes that act upon us. Here's what freedom is. And let me show you the benefits of virtue understood in this sense. There's a really interesting autobiographical passage at the beginning of his treatise on the emendation of the intellect where Spinoza describes a moment in his life. His father had recently died and he was a merchant uh, taking over the family's business in the Amsterdam Portuguese Jewish community. But he found that life very unsatisfying and he recognized that the goods he was pursuing, you know, money, honor in the community, uh, a good business reputation, that these are not the true goods of life that there had to be something better, something that brought a deeper and more lasting satisfaction. And I think this is the picture of moral deliberation that Spinoza has in mind. Not that you sit and all of a sudden decide you're going to change your life, but that you notice in the life you're living a certain lack of satisfaction. And that moves you, in a very causal way, that moves you to seek out new goods and hopefully you will land upon your acknowledgement of what, what the true good is. So within this causally deterministic picture, you see how life can change without implying that there's a spontaneous, undetermined act of free choice. Hmm, it's interesting. It almost seems like ethics in this style is more like a science of accurately describing and accurately understanding what it is for things to go well for somebody versus what it is for things to go poorly. And so the job of the moral philosopher is less to advise people, do this, don't do that, stop doing this, stop doing that, and more just to help people arrive at a better understanding of the significance of what they've done already and what they might do in the future. Right, and also to point out what are true goods and what are merely apparent goods. What will bring you short-term benefits and what will bring you long-term benefits? Spinoza defines good as that which contributes to the well-being and flourishing of an individual, and that is bad, which decreases their power or conatus. And the job of the philosopher, or the job of any virtuous, reasonable person, is to uh, recognize what things do truly benefit a human being as a human being, and which things are only apparent or misleadingly perceived as good. 
So I think this resonates very strongly with the ancient Greek perspective on ethics, as you've mentioned, right? It resonates pretty strongly with, for example, Aristotle's virtue ethics. And Seneca and Epictetus as well, the ancient Stoics. I think there's a a great Stoic influence on Spinoza's moral philosophy. You know, you read parts four and five of the ethics and you think immediately of the ancient Stoics. Absolutely, yeah. And the determinism goes really well with the Stoics as well. Uh The difference is that for the Stoics, at least some Stoics, the determinism is there... uh, governed by a providential deity. You know, there's teleology in some prominent Stoic systems and a divinity who's guiding nature. And that's absent in Spinoza. So what do you see as the main new contribution that Spinoza's perspective is bringing to this tradition, going back a long way, of kind of like taking the long view on a human life and trying to analyze what it is to go well versus to go badly for a person? I think what he brings is an opposition to the kinds of illusions that encourage us to think of ourselves as independent beings that have total self-control. And I think he takes it both as an empirical fact, an introspective fact, and also a rationally demonstrable fact that we are not, that's not what we are. Anybody who's experienced the ups and downs of the emotional life, who has lost a loved one or has seen pleasures vanish, it's clear, I think, and Spinoza's simply pointing out or demonstrating geometrically that we don't have that kind of independence from nature and that our emotions are not so under our control. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like you don't need to show that nothing influenced you or made you do the things you do in order to still have morality. And beyond that, it's like you don't even need to show that nothing ever influences you to demonstrate that you're free. It's like he's trying to recover morality and freedom in the face of the knowledge that uh, the outside world has strong influence over us. Right. Yeah. Because these are just, these are sort of facts on the ground that we have to deal with. Now, remember what I I described for Spinoza, the moral life is a life in which an individual strives to maintain their being, preserve themselves, and increase their power. And it's true that his account of moral motivation is thoroughly egoistic. Everything we do is motivated by this conatus or striving to maintain and improve ourselves. But that doesn't mean that he believes that we can run roughshod over other people. Uh, And in fact, you were using the word morality there. For Spinoza, morality necessarily involves treating other human beings with justice and charity, acting in ways which help them improve their lives and reach a state of flourishing, although the motivation for that is always an egoistic one because I am better off being surrounded by other human beings who are also rationally virtuous. That also is so reminiscent, it seems, of the ancient perspective in which Acting for the benefit of other people and acting for your own benefit were often just kind of thought of as the same thing. Yeah. In this case, acting to benefit others is in the service. It's not just as a matter of fact that they both happen to redound to your own benefit, but acting to benefit others is done in the service of acting to benefit yourself. Now, only the rational and virtuous person understands that. Other people may have this, uh, let's go back to your gut instinct. Other people may just have this altruistic gut instinct and help others, and they may not realize that by doing so, 
they are benefiting themselves. The downside of that is that if they don't understand how and why benefiting others benefits themselves, they may not be very successful or efficient in helping to benefit others. They may think they're helping others when in fact they're not. So you know, let's say I know you have a taste for burgers, so I decide, my gut instinct says, I'm, for his birthday I want to give him 25 hamburgers. And I think I'm helping you, but you know, that's, I'm not acting from reason there. It seems like we're close to a really nice explanation for what the difference is between helping other people on the basis of understanding like why that's the right thing to do versus like forcing yourself to help other people, like guilt tripping yourself into helping other people or like that difference. Right. It's, it's not, the, again, going back to Kant, it's not the kind of person that he describes in the prolegomena, no, sorry, not the prolegomena, the groundwork for the metaphysics and morals of somebody, all of whose instincts and inclinations are against helping others, but who does it anyway. And so we're, again, closer to the Stoic sage, somebody all of whose instincts and habits now are in accordance with reason and does so willingly and takes pleasure in doing so. It's not the pleasure that motivates them, but their clear and distinct perception that doing so is in their own best interest. So how does this perspective of human beings as being embedded in the natural world, as opposed to being above or separate from or less determined than the natural world. How does that ramify in our everyday lives? Well, it does change our perspective on a lot of the situations we face. Um, Let's take the example that Spinoza himself considers of suicide. Ordinarily, we think that a person could rationally and with all clear-sightedness choose to end their life. And in fact, various nations and even states within the United States have decided that assisted physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia is permissible because it's legitimate to consider a person's wishes to terminate their lives when we have evidence that that decision has been made with full understanding of who they are and what their situation is. Somebody who's facing nothing but continued pain when there's no hope for relief from suffering, from terminal illness, We think that the humane thing to do is to let the person decide on their own whether to end their life if we are confident this is a rational decision. Now Spinoza says things that might lead us to believe that he thinks that the idea of rational suicide is incoherent because every individual is necessarily this striving to preserve and maintain their being and increase their power and that to act from the guidance of reason is to act in accordance with that striving and to further it that it would be inconceivable that reason would ever dictate that we end our life, end our striving. And so according to Spinoza, at least at first appearances, it looks like Spinoza is saying that the idea of rational suicide is impossible, that a person will only willfully terminate their existence when overcome by passions and by the force of external circumstances. And that's a perfectly legitimate reading of Spinoza, but I don't think that's Is that what he really means to say? Um, It seems that way. I don't think he should say that, and I think maybe if pressed, he would acknowledge that he doesn't have to say that. Why couldn't it be the case that the free, rationally virtuous person will have a clear-sighted view of what life would be like were to continue if a person is suffering from a terminal and extremely painful disability or illness? Why couldn't Spinoza allow that a person under the guidance of reason would see that were they to continue living, their conatus would simply suffer decreases, which he describes as sorrow and pain. 
and then the free and rational person whose striving is to maintain or increase their konatas or power would turn away from a life of diminishing power and so choose rationally to end that life and that quality of life because that's what they're really striving to maintain. It's not just life per se, but a certain life of reason, virtue, and power and freedom. And if they see that the future holds out no hope of that continuing, I think Spinoza could, would, and probably should say that that would be the decision the rationally free person would make. And I think that's the decision you know, that uh, policymakers should respect. It doesn't seem to me humane for us to ignore the possibility that the decision to end one's life might be a rational one. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? Because at first you'd think that if every person has this inborn drive to constantly keep themselves alive and not only survive but live well, if everybody has that, how could you consistently with that decide to end your life? And it seems like your idea here is that, well, if you have really compelling evidence that if you were to remain alive, it would basically just be flatlining at zero. You wouldn't be actually going anywhere, even though you'd be technically alive. There's no reason that that would come out as a superior alternative to just ending it now. Yeah, I think it depends upon whether you see the conatus as merely simply a striving to survive or striving to be free and powerful and rational and virtuous. I think it's the latter. And thus, if what you see is a future where there's diminishing returns on freedom, rationality, and virtue, you wouldn't want to continue living. Right. I mean, another kind of example like this that jumps to mind is maybe somebody who's been a POW for many years, is getting tortured all the time, and seems like this is just going to go on indefinitely. That seems like also a case in which those things, uh, freedom, rationality, and so forth, are not going to have the opportunity to flourish. If the situation is truly hopeless, and not just you have a feeling of hopelessness, but you can see through reason that the situation is truly hopeless. One of my favorite propositions of the ethics is uh, part four, proposition 67, where Spinoza says, the free person thinks least of all of death. And I think um, we shouldn't see Spinoza as this pessimistic philosopher who thinks, you know what, everything's determined, you don't have any control, so just go with it. He thinks that once we free ourselves from these superstitious beliefs about the immortality of the soul, punishment, eternal reward in heaven and eternal punishment in hell, once we stop thinking that there's this providential God who, like a personal agent, will reward and punish us and so on, we can concentrate and enjoy the rewards of virtue in this life and achieve a real happiness rather than the kind of suffering and bondage that these superstitious beliefs impose upon us. It really is, a, in many ways, a philosophy of freedom and happiness. It's hard to read, but once you get through it and you get the picture, I think it's hard not to really be enchanted by Spinoza. Stephen Nadler, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always... You can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Listening.